it's incredibly busy right now. I have no idea how I'm surviving it, but it's been mad with our COVID-19 scorecard on this one end and EU proposal on the other, some recruitment going on. It's mad. It's absolute madness on my plate. But I'm surviving. I mean, I'd rather keep busy than be idle. You're listening to Pilot Cell Podcast, a conversation around mental health. I'm your host, Anthony Olwuch. This week, I shall be having a chat with Ricky Kositau. She is a human rights defender, a trans-feminist activist, the executive director of Accountability International, and many other things. Most of all, she is an incredibly fantastic human being. Before we begin, though, I would like to share with you a poem that she wrote. It is a reflection of self that I believe everyone should hear. Her stage name, Tsodilo, comes from the magical hills in central Botswana, where the big foot of the legend Matsieng is found. Here it is, Transparent by Tsodilo. I stare into a trance I've been my entire life transcended into the life above the life I live in. I live in a trance, yet I transist the highest notes of this life. Its lowest, deepest and bare notes I've cried out. A trance mission I've been given, sent from above. Why my creation transgresses the laws of human truth? The transmission from a higher tower. One on which you sit on your transparent throne. Seen by the eyes of a different kind. Eyes that see transparency in the love of God and this transgrandest being he created. I too stare in trans awe at this case and just feel that it really transgresses years of a lie of the truth that transpires over generations. They knew it then, yes, and still do now to generations of their offspring, that once in a while, once in a person, one is born transgressing the laws of physics and superhuman strength, but that one hero, laws of the chemistry that make others more powerful and magnetic than others, and of course, the laws of the biology that makes them Adam or Eve-like, yet those laws have been transcended, with one with Eve in here and Adam out there. Yeah, they knew that, yet they refused to transcend their eyes to the trans- Parent truth that God is a transparent too. My name is Tepo Riki Kositau Kanza. Usually people will just call me Riki or Tepo, whichever one is much more comfortable for them. And I am a lot of things in one person. I am firstly a human rights defender. Um, a global development and global health advocate, uh, particularly from an inclusive perspective. I am a an accountability agent. I work to hold leaders accountable, both at the level of um, national and state leaders, but even within our own spaces as civil society and at community level. I'm a trans-feminist to the core, so I particularly subscribe to trans and transformative um, feminist principles. And I lead the organization that I work for um, with feminist principles as a feminist leader. I work for Accountability International as the executive director. And it's an organization that works to hold leaders accountable and to proliferate accountability as a tool through which we can attain social justice, developmental, health-related outcomes you talk about being a trans feminist and and going for trans feminist principles what are these trans feminist principles so ideally trans feminism is a form of feminism or a wave of feminism and school of thought that 
seeks to broaden the scope of traditional ways in which many, I guess, very first wave kind of feminist principles were founded on the struggles and plight of women and girls, um, which in and of itself was quite essentialist in terms of how it foregrounded sex as a, a, a definitive marker of whom carried privilege and who did not carry privilege, often at times being very dichotomous and looking at males versus females or men um, in terms of how they excluded and disempowered women and girls. When you now bring in the experiences of transgender, transdiverse and gender diverse um, individuals, you get to also understand the nuance of the ways in which patriarchy as a system that has rewarded males or men specifically who are cisgender heterosexual, you get to also then appreciate the broader spectrum of persons that actually are at the disadvantage and mercy of patriarchy as a system. And in there, of course, you are finding women and girls as a marginalized group. But then we broaden that even definition of those particular groups and, and communities of persons that are um, that are denied access, that are denied their rights, that are denied opportunities, that are that the system seeks to disempower. I would not say they are disempowered because many of us carry that power. And in that category, when you broaden it that way, yes, you then get to appreciate the trans experiences. You get to also appreciate LGBTI persons' experiences in general because a, a gay man who outright identifies as gay is at the mercy of a system that is punitive towards any man who happens to not be straight or, and I put that in inverted commas, or heterosexual in, in how they identify and express their own sexual orientation. Likewise, all other um, persons that are different, including LGBTI persons generally, persons that are differently abled or, as other people say, disabled, Whereas we have learned so much of um, how persons who are differently abled, be it that they are differently abled cognitively, be it that they're, they're differently abled physically, they have various other abilities. Scientific research has now proven to us that even persons who, for instance, are born and living with autism have a, a sharper um, memory than actually regular folk who do not necessarily live with Absolutely. autism. So for that, we get to appreciate better how everybody who in the previous kind of definition of disempowering persons and calling them disabled are in actual fact differently abled. So for me, those are the kind of transformative perspectives that come with transfeminism that seeks to also understand the experiences of even trans men, because you will remember that exclusionary feminist principles have often just even excluded men from, from being um, identified or self-labeling as feminists. But when I bring in my trans experiences as a transgender person of the trans diverse community, trans men, for instance, have experiences of being negated, their masculinity being negated, and to a great degree being even emasculated by cisgender men. And that's a system that continuously is trying to strip them of their manhood by creating the scale or hierarchy of determining who fits the, the mold and who doesn't. And anybody who, according to the, the, the system, this is the patriarchal system that I, I talk about, that continuously rewards cisgender heterosexual men, it says anybody who falls outside of that realm of being virile, of having testosterone and being yes. heterosexual and being a go-getter, all these long list of, of identifiers or qualifiers of what is seen to be typical manhood, then all of them and all of us are at the mercy of that system and we continuously have to fight for our space, to continuously fight for our own experiences to be taken to be valid and our own um, abilities in essence, some of them that are intellectual abilities, artistic abilities, physical abilities even. And with that, we get to realize that feminism in and of itself needs to continuously transform to move away from the essentialist kind of um, definition that was founded on that women and girls, when we have now reached a level of gender equality, hence I even challenge those kind of, of notions of gender equality. We're not looking for gender, gender equality. equality. When you come with a transformative feminist perspective that we're not looking for gender equality, we are looking for gender diverse equity, where every single person that identifies anyhow, whether it's their sex or their gender, 
is in actual fact given equitable access to resources and to opportunities and to a life in, in all of them themselves in however they identify. Yeah. So it's it's with that right. that I see them challenging those kind of, of notions of we're seeking gender equality. We are not seeking gender equality. We're seeking gender equity for gender diverse individuals. And when we look at that, then everybody in society, regardless of whether they are the minority within the minority, will be able to benefit. And for me, that comes with the kind of lens of, of um, trans feminism. Yeah, and and uh, you're talking about gender diverse, the gender diverse equity uh, uh, from a transformative lens. In in the continent of Africa, there have been people who have been denied their rights. We, you just said earlier, and I, I love this this phrase that uh, we are not disempowered; we sit within our power. Yeah, uh, there, there are quite a number of people who have been denied their rights. Uh, but at the same time, there have been a few successes in the continent with regards to gender diverse equity. Can we talk about a few of those? Like Botswana, where you come from, is one of those countries that has 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 changed, possibly going to change the laws. Yep. Thank you for that, um, Tony, because there, there's been quite a lot of strides. I'm, I'm glad that I'm living in a time that 10, 12 years ago when I was still a very young activist getting into into the movement because for me I was baptized within an LGBTI movement building and advocacy space where many a times we were told when I began my own litigation against the government of Botswana, for instance, in 2011, that I'm seeking for things that I potentially am not going to be able to see to fruition in my lifetime because of the fact that our governments refuse to acknowledge our existence and potentially I will sow the seeds, but I would not come to reap the, the fruit or bear the fruit the of yeah. the seeds. And seven years of my litigation in my life were dedicated to my case, um, as well as that of ND, who's the um, the trans man who him and I's cases were both successful in the high court in the same year of 2017. And that's the year in which we were able to see to the greatest depth of how our court system, particularly in the context of Botswana, has really fire. Uh, progressed even further than the legislative um, wing of government itself being our parliament in that it continuously has affirmed the the inalienable right of all persons, particularly within an LGBTI framing, to be able to determine themselves and to be able to identify and for the state's responsibility to also cover us in order to ensure that then our rights are also protected just like any other non-LGBTI folk in the country. So when you take um, a step back, you get to realize our um, strategy of litigation in Botswana was an incremental approach that sought to start with the softer matters, as difficult as they were, but we felt that they were softer matters. It was in 2014-2015 that, um, getting even into 2016, that we took the government to court on the matter related to Le Habibo, the lesbians, gays and bisexuals of Botswana's registration that had been denied for about 10 years. And that was the starting point of building a body of work that would get us to the 2017 win and success in court, and even the 2019 um, success of the decriminalization of um, sodomy or homosexuality in the country. And we started off with the registration of Le Habibo, which we won in the High Court in 2015. And following that, it was then won again at the High Court of Appeal, where the government had actually went to appeal the matter. Once more, the government, the court actually stated without even any gray zones that LGBTI persons are also equal Botswana like any other citizen in the country. For, fast forward to 2017, two matters related to transgender persons seeking gender marker change um, and legal gender recognition in that re regard were successful in the High Court. That one of ND, which was um, the head judgment was handed in, in September of 2017, and then my court order was issued on December of the same year. And with that, we were able to also then get successes of protection of gender identity as a, a fundamental aspect of one's innate identity and dignity. And further to that, an even bigger interpretation of sex and gender 
gender was now interpreted because of our matters as to encapsulate gender identity and expression in its entirety. Because in previous context, um, the constitutional interpretation was that gender meant men and women, and that was where the, uh, it ended. But with our cases, the court was able to affirm that that was only by way of listing, but it was not an exhaustive list. An exhaustive list in it includes intersex persons, and it also includes uh, trans diverse individuals and gender diverse individuals who in and of themselves should also be protected by the same constitution from discrimination based on their gender identity and or expression or even sex characteristics. And then fast forward into 2019, the same court system again affirmed the right of LGBTI persons, particularly um, gay and lesbian as well as bisexual individuals, having the right to be protected under the same laws of the country and by the same constitution in as much as they identify differently to greater society and that the constitution of Botswana seeks not to just protect the majority for if it were foregrounded on a majority kind of dictate then many other people would be denied their right to dignity based on the fact that they do not fall within what satisfies the majority's own taste and liking and with that then the court is meant to be the main arbiter that is able to at least arbitrating those kind of matters where the majority seeks to invisibilize and oppress the minority. And that is what then the court last year in, in June was able to, to affirm for us. Although government is going to appeal, we sit with confidence at this point in time that we've built um, quite a strong body of work and precedence and jurisprudence that's been set in the country that will be difficult for any court at this point in time to reverse because to do so, it would have to also go against all the judgments of 2017, 2016 and 2015, which at this point in time, we do not see it possible. And when you widen that as well into the greater continent, we, we saw a legislative reform in Angola last year also come to repeal the anti-sodomy and anti-homosexuality legislation and penal code provisions that had preceded since its um, its independence and becoming a more democratic state. With that also seeing how there are certain changes that we're seeing as slow as they may be, they are very huge in terms of the ripple effect they have because for an, a parliament to take a legislative reform um, stance of this nature that sets a precedence that can be able to be used to be able to advance our advocacy our inclusion and the kind of integration we seek into the greater continent because africa for the longest time has or the, the far right in on the african continent has often used this notion of that what we seek is um, context that is not African, that comes from the West, so that comes from the global North, because we didn't have enough of this local domestic jurisprudence that has been set, and of which at this point in time, Angola and Botswana mount a very stronger case in light of South Africa having been the only country for the longest time that had taken these kind of reforms where there were penal provisions against um, any form of sexual orientation that deviated or was outside of the ambit of cis heteronormativity. So with that, we're seeing how the African bloc that is pro-LGBTI is growing, which for us is a very strong tool in doing the advocacy work that we need to do where we are able to present that hey, we're not just talking about the progress that has been made in the U.S. about um, equal equality to marriage. We're not talking just about the reforms that have come from, from U.K. or from any other of um, the European states, but that there are countries on the African continent that have also seen it necessary to provide these kind of universal protections um, of every single individual, regardless of their orientation or gender identity. Brilliant. Uh, one of the things that uh, anyone can learn from from Botswana and Angola, actually, but especially Botswana, is is the the importance of that incremental litigation, that incremental mm -hmm. work from mm -hmm. from something that most would consider minute into something that uh, that actually has a huge impact. And I wanted to talk about that for a second. I wanted to talk about that and your particular role in this mm -hmm. um you, you you as an individual has has had to deal with a lot of pushback from from the society from the media how has that affected you how has it affected you and, and your mental health so i 
I definitely recognize the little brick that I've put on on the wall in building this amount of work that we have seen the successes in Botswana, um, because I've I've since the time that I started, I guess officially being an activist in a much more formalized sense of working in the in this in the sector, that was far back as far back as two thousand and eleven, which is around the same time that I began my litigation. I chose to become known as a person who existed, who identified as trans, because it, it became difficult for me to imagine shifting the mindsets and the hearts of people when they just think of us as pseudonyms or as, as case numbers that we're seeking the kind of reforms we were seeking in, in court. And I felt it important for us to be able to engage society by showing them what does a trans person look like? And ideally, a trans person just looks like any other ordinary folk. And for them to be able to appreciate the fact that we are existing human beings, we are people, we are children of people, we've got parents, that we are siblings to some of our own siblings that are our cousins, are our, our blood siblings that we are born with from our own parents, that we are also intelligent individuals who contribute to um, the development of our community that we live in, who contribute to the economy of the country, we pay our taxes, and that outright because of that responsibility, that social responsibility that we carry, we to also have our rights and our freedoms and liberties also protected. And that involved quite a lot of media advocacy work. It involved a lot of visibility raising work. So I engaged quite a lot with with multimedia, with TV, with radio, with newspapers, with magazines, both in the country and even outside on, in, on the international platform, raising awareness about the fact that for seven years of my litigation, government did not have a case. And continuously in those years, my true dignity as a human being was being compromised was not being respected, was not protected. And as such, I was vulnerable, of which I needed to show my face. I needed to make sure that society at large was able to see us just as they saw themselves, as human beings in the ultimate. In the church space that I, I, I am in, because I am a liberal Christian by my own identity of my kind of form of, of Christian um, hood, if I can put it that way. And I had I chose to exist within a church space that we know is very hostile, to a great degree is very violent towards um, sexual and gender minorities. And I chose to be very visible in that space and not just visible by sitting in the pews. I took up active roles within the church as a youth leader. I took up the responsibility as a choir conductor at my age where I was still in my early 20s. At the same time, identifying fully as the person that I identify as, as a transgender woman and openly in engaging with media is such that my church was not somehow um, in, blinded from who and what I am as such that we would even have people in the church who worked for some of the newspapers that I did interviews with, bringing some of those newspaper print and, and, and printouts to the church to share with congregants in the church. On various platforms, I was able to speak on the need or even on what I see as queer theology, where I see the Bible in and of itself as this religious scripture containing so much of rich um, nuances and very explicit, um, ex I guess, portrayals of queerness in, in and of itself. Part of the scripture that I love to quote is from Genesis, which a lot of Christians love to quote Genesis because apparently it is the very beginning of all human beings within, I guess, a much more Christian-oriented um, kind of thinking. But Genesis 37 verse 3 itself speaks about a child who was born to Israel. And Israel is a descendant of, of Isaac and a descendant of Abraham who bore a child God called Joseph. Joseph, who happened to be somehow a very queer child, Anthony, who his own father realized that this child is very different. And this child was very gifted and a person who was able to interpret dreams, who very on, on in early in their life was able to interpret dreams and was able to see a dream in which the, his own siblings, and I usually will just call their own sibling for the fact that I don't believe that they were truly, truly male as they're often just portrayed, but that they were male assigned at birth and that Joseph 
somehow already had seen in the vision that at some point their own brothers would at some point come to bow before Joseph, of which they later on did when Joseph was now sitting as an advisor to a pharaoh in Egypt where he was living very well after his own brothers had actually sold Joseph to the merchants and claiming to their father Israel that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal all for the fact that he was the special child, all because of the fact that the father made a very multicolored coat that the Hebrew Bible says that it was a coat fit for a princess. And this is in Hebrew. So a coat fit for a princess for me tells me a lot about the kind of character of Joseph, that this child was very was very feminine insofar as how they expressed themselves. And their father knew this about this child. And their father actually embraced this child and made this very special coat that was very different to the other brothers for the Joseph specifically because Israel embraced his own child. So I always come into that space of my church with such strong understanding of even what is premised, what our whole entire Christian doctrine is premised on. It is premised on the Bible. And the Bible in and of itself contains these very this very liturgy that I'm speaking about. So I'm not even creating anything that is outside that is not written. You even go and the, the story and nature of somebody like Ruth and Naomi, whose relationship is depicted as one that was very intimate for two females within that very context. You even go further and understand how there are many other versions of the Bible that have taken out the, con the understanding and conceptualization of King David, who loved to be surrounded by the eunuchs. The eunuchs were very castrated males at the time. That's the, the kind of blatant words and language that was used, which made them in and of themselves very effeminate. Yet we also understand that there were eunuchs that were born eunuch, of which we understand that those were individuals that were male assigned, but having just a very feminine kind of expression. So when I come into my religious and spaces of faith, I bring with me that kind of tool and those kind of weapons where I'm able to counter this prevailing narrative that says that being gay, being homosexual is an abomination because many people will often go and quote the scene of Sodom, of Sodom and Gomorrah. But when you also interpret Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the kind of context, you understand that the, the scene of, of Sodom actually to sodomize somebody was a scene of rape. It was a scene of males who could be able to rape another man in order to emasculate him. So it wasn't necessarily about the sexual gratification and pleasure of a male with another male, but that it was a forceful kind of sexual violence on another person who wasn't consenting. And as such, the kind of interpretation that even many of bigoted um, Christians often bring about the scripture that itself, they often would not withstand the fact that Lot himself, as he was told to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, wanted to trade his own daughters to be raped by those men who were outside wanting to rape the angels that were hovering inside of his house. So I, I have taken time, Tony, to also even understand the kind of nuances around sexual diversity and, and gender diversity contained within the Bible, where Joseph is used by God to save his own family later on in later life after they've thrown him out, hating him, disliking him, disowning him. But he comes to be the same person who saves his family when they were hit and struck by famine, where they had to come to Egypt to come and ask for grain and food. And he put a golden cup into his brother's sack of grain in order for them to be able to go home and be able to sell that gold to be able to have some more food and to be able to afford a better life at the time where they were drought stricken. And this is still the same exact God. So for me, I've existed in that space where obviously it comes with backlash. Not everybody wants to hear the fact that our God is not a God that hates God's own creation. Because I have seen many examples of God's love for creation and its diversity. We see it in all other animals. But somehow when it comes to us as human beings, we stop believing that God created us to be diverse. And I push back at that kind of pushback that wants to tell us that the essentialist view that God only created Adam and Eve no, God, yes, created Adam and Eve. We will not dispute that. But God also created Joseph. What was Joseph? A child that yes, was exactly. God. So for me, I, I exist in that space still where 
religion can be used as a token of violence towards myself and my own kin who are LGBTI, but I still am able to push back at that by stipulating that the God I serve is a God of love. And when you are unable to love your own neighbor, and it does not tell you what your neighbor is, whether your neighbor is LGBTI, whether your neighbor is a foreigner, whether your neighbor is born with albinism, whether your neighbor is whatever they might be, it just is love your neighbor just as you would love yourself. That's when you would be able to honor your God. So anybody for me who is unable to love any other person, a neighbor is anybody you meet up with in greater society. They are failing at the very commandments that Jesus Christ left for us. The very main two, which are to love your God with all your mind, your heart, and your soul. It doesn't even say love your God with your body. That's one. Two, the second one is that love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Christ even said to the disciples as he he existed in that context, saying to them that if you want to show people that you are really one with me and with my God, you are going to love each other just as I had loved you. So anybody who fails to love Anthony for me is unable to show the true nature of the example of a Christ that they're supposed to follow and mimic, of which that's for me the thing that has sustained me, the love that my family has shown me as I grew up as a child who grew up in a Christian family that did not disown me, that stood by me through all the trials and tribulations of going through my litigation of the media onslaught. At some point, I remember in 2017, I was in Botswana with my then fiance, who's my husband now, Tony, and my whole entire life about with him, about our wedding that was impending, which we had chosen not to speak about openly, um, wanting government to award my, my um, gender marker on merit of my presenting my case for my gender identity purely and not wanting them to dilute it with whether this was then meaning that same-sex marriages would be allowed in the country. They went and splashed our whole entire intimate details of our life and our relationship and our marriage on the front covers of some sleazy tabloid. And in all those times, my family stood by me firmly saying that God loves you. If God did not love you, God would not have even allowed you to be born. God would not have allowed you to have even transitioned into the woman that you are because anything that God doesn't want does not happen. So by virtue of you being you, it tells us that God actually wanted you to be as you are and that we are the family that is meant to have to take care of you because it's a godly responsibility that God has given us to take care of you and to love you. And if we fail at that duty, we fail at our responsibility and our love towards our God. So you get to see Tony how I have grown up with this and I know it's a huge privilege because it's a bubble it's a cushion that I have grown with that has been a shield a force field around me that has just bounced off and reflected and and pushed back at every kind of negativity that would be channeled towards me which I think for me was the propelling thing that kept on telling me that because of this amount of privilege that I carry, I therefore carry so much of responsibility to ensure that I do better, to make sure that this world is much more different, it's much better, it's much more conducive for other LGBTI persons who might otherwise not have the kind of social support that I had with my family, with my friends, and even with the church that I had transformed to understanding and appreciating God's love for diversity because of my existence within even the very patriarchal system of that is the church. And I continue to exist within it, Tony, where right now I'm even answering to a call in ministry um, within the Church of Methodist. And I am very open about the fact and, and, and transparent about the fact that I subscribe to queer theology. I also subscribe to women's liberation theology. And I also subscribe to a decolonial theology that seeks to not rob Africans of their Africanness if they are to embrace this um, Hebrew God of the Israelites that we have adopted through Christianity. But I seek to continuously help people who are African marry their faith with their traditional African belief systems. Because before we were Christian as Africans, Tony, we already were people who believed in God. We were already a people who were able to speak to our God through our ancestry. But the kind of, I guess, colonial way of interpreting the scriptures has always told us that we needed to denounce our Africanness in order to embrace being Christian. And I push back at that because the Bible in and of itself that we read as Christians continuously contains in and of itself scripture that shows us the embrace 
of ancestry, when they talk about the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of Isaac, the God of David, the God of Jesus Christ, those are an ancestry of people who understand that their God provides for them through the people that they have brought before them as their fathers and their forefathers and their foremothers and their foreparents. And with that, I seek to ask an African to embrace Christianity still within their own African kind of traditional belief system because being African and believing in, for instance, our traditional medicine, believing in our sangomas, believing in our, our traditional doctors, our healers, our seers, does not make us evil, nor are they evil because they get those powers from our ancestry. And our ancestry is the mediator, mediary between us and our actual God, who's the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, omniparent God. So with that, for me, I'm continuously reminded, that's the thing that I think has sustained my mental well-being. The picture that for me, nobody can ever erase in my mind, Tony, of the fact that God loves diversity. We see it in all the animals God created, like fish. We've got all these small microscopic fish, and then you've got a killer whale, and all of them live in the waters. Mm -hmm. You've got birds that fly, and you've got birds that are flightless. You've got human beings that are dark-skinned. You've got human beings that are fair-skinned. You've got all this kind of multiple languages. All of it is telling us that God loves diversity. So for me, nobody can rob me of that. Even when they try to push back at me, I'm able to stand firm because mostly religious bigotry is what continuously is used to push back at our existence and to invisibilize and violate our existence. And likewise, within a traditional um, context, I grew up in a family that is traditional as well. Um, they're traditionalists. They, we believe in my family um, to give credence to our ancestors. We believe that our ancestors do have power and we must communicate with them. We must also even offer them a thank you and gratitude at times where we have um, a good harvest. We are supposed to say thank you to our ancestors who continuously ensure that there are rains that we receive. And we learn as Africans that predating colonialism, LGBTI persons existed as gender diverse and sexually diverse individuals. You go back into, into the Basara, we learn that the Basara have always had um, an appeasement ceremony that was done when a child was born somewhat um, with a sex that was ambiguous. They would do a traditional ceremony that they invited their ancestry to be able to help them, guide them in how they should raise that particular young individual. And it's even pervasive within other Tswana cultures where this kind of a ceremony was performed by a traditional doctor who was able to communicate with the ancestors for the ancestors to tell us how should this child be raised. You go into the Nigerian um pre-colonial Nigeria, you have um, in, the, in, the, in the vernacular where they have a word, Yandaudu and Adofuro, which come from, um, from the Hausa um, clans, where you are able to, in Yoruba, where you are able to hear that there were individuals who were male assigned at birth, who could be taken as wives of other men because they were effeminate or they were feminine or they were otherwise not masculine identified or ex um, expressing on the claims that this is an African, you wonder where they get, how they have dissociated themselves from themselves. Because the Buganda kingdom gave rise to the Uganda that is the Republic of today. And they have King Mwanga, who was an, an, a gay man in, in terms of, or at least homosexual in terms of his sexual preferences. How have we become this kind of people who have forgotten our own selves? It's because we have been robbed of our identity and understanding the rich um, diversity that also existed within our own traditionalist kind of communities, pre-colonial Africa. And I continuously am pushing back against that for an African to be able to connect back to themselves. South Africa currently still has the Balobedu, where the Queen Mojachi comes from in the Limpopo province. They still practice to this day a practice where the rain queen herself is asked to have to take maidens for her own consorts as a way of protecting her powers as a rain queen. That in and of itself, let us not call it lesbianism because then that is a foreign language. And I accept when an African says that is foreign because the language we use to also label um, that we yes. label in that manner in an African context, pre-colonial Africa, is what is a problem. But the essence there is that 
diversity on a sexual level and on a, on a gender diversity level has always been something that existed within an African context. And it's important that Africans need to reconnect with who they are if we are to have a conversation about what is African and what is not African. I, I just, I just want to circle back to something that you said earlier. Um, I mean, I live my life with something also from the Bible where you do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. And that, that has basically kept me going. It has kept me, it has kept my mental health in check, but it has also kept me engaging with other people in a way that does not, does not harm them because I do not want to be him myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've talked a lot about uh, religion. You've talked a lot about Christianity and you've actually, uh, you've actually mentioned the fact that you, 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 you're sitting within a privileged space where you have the support of your family. You have the support of your loved ones. There are people out there. There are trans folk out there who do not have that support, uh, who are suffering from different mental health concerns Based on their fact that they, they they live in a they live in a different gender identity, do you have some solutions for them? Knowing, understanding that you're coming from a privileged space, but uh, and others probably do not. Do you have some solutions for them, and and and, and how can they deal with uh, the mental anguish that they constantly face? And and in that, uh, I would like to ask you to to also give us one last. Any, any word that you'd have for people, LGBT folk, our siblings who are dealing with mental health issues? Okay. So I think from, from my end, I definitely encourage a lot of us, first and foremost, who are LGBT identified, to understand the master's house in order to dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And there I'm speaking about Christian, well, not Christian per se, but religious scripture and text, because we have different types of religious belief systems, which many of them do contain um, pro-LGBTI, pro-diversity um, liturgy in them. And with when we do that, we stand a much better positioning, um, Tony, to be able to counter the kind of far-right kind of conservative, exclusionary, and even violent um, religious interpretation. So I, I first and foremost encourage us all to approach our religious scriptures and really get intimate with them and be deliberate about seeking that which affirms um, the love of all humanity, of where we speak about even the inalienableness of, of humanity. And that's where you find that in the, the golden rule across all, all religions remains what you just said, Tony, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you, which is a golden rule that is found in every one of the religions that exist. And I say that boldly with confidence that you will find it in each and every one of the religions that we have. And it is the same thing that is also even contained within an African ethos of Ubuntu or in Sotswana as we say it of Botu, of that I am because of you, you are because of me, that there's no way of alienating you from myself as a human being. That which I want done to me, I need to be doing it on you as well because of the fact that there's a reciprocity of humanity. When we understand those and we are able to speak with conviction and being able to even reference the sources of those kind of positionalities that we take that are pro-diversity, um, that are pro-humanity, that are pro Ubuntu and Botu, we stand a far much better chance of being able to protect ourselves against the onslaught of those that seek to erode the the kind of understanding we have of this golden rule. Second thing is to continuously seek, we're seeing more and more emerging um, pro-LGBTI ministers. We're seeing more and more of exist of um, prevailing narratives around um, alternative interpretations of religious scripture that exist out there. We need to seek those and we need to engage with those particular entities that carry this kind of wisdom and use them as champions for change in spaces where we perhaps might not be allowed or be permitted or be able to speak with conviction. We exist in a time where right now now we've got 
ministers who are in the churches, for instance, in my own Methodist context, we've got gay ministers. Um, in Christian denominations of different um, denominations, you have even people like your Reverend G.D. McCauley, who is now within the Anglican Church. These are individuals that are very strong that could be able to speak directly to their own peers as we try to even transform these kind of social spaces. I think it's also very important that we seek some of the documentation that exists. I'm happy that we are doing even this podcast. These are some of the pockets of knowledge that become pockets or, or ammunition that we can be able to use when engaging our families, when we're engaging our peers at community level, when we are engaging religious and even state leaders, where we can be able to give them this kind of pockets of knowledge to go and listen and meditate over. So it's important that we don't continuously think that we have to fight the battle by ourselves alone, that there are rich um, pockets of evidence that also have been brought to the fore. These forms of discussion that we're having, podcasts that exist out there on various alternative interpretations of, of, of religious scripture, for instance, that is pro-humanity. I think it's also very important that for some of us, and that's something that I'm, I continuously am doing, that have had this kind of family support, for instance, that comes from a typical background of a Christian family like mine, a traditionalist family like mine that is really ground, truly grounded in the Barulum farms where it's a rural kind of environment, use those particular persons to be able to speak to others. That with what that I mean, let's use people like my own mother to engage with other mothers who are struggling with the, the gender identity or sexual orientation of their own child. We need to tap into that kind of resource and its resources that exist. We are seeing more and more um, parents of LGBTI persons who are existing in community and say, I love my child as they are. We need to use those people to be able to speak to their own peers because a mother speaking to a mother, that's powerful. A father speaking to a, a father, a parent speaking to another parent, that is where the power also lies because then we don't need to be doing this work, but all by ourselves when we have these kind of champions who also exist. But then in, I guess, in, in summary and closing as well, looking just at mental health and mental well-being of, of my LGBTI siblings in all our diversity, I think the, the one thing that I really want to, to give them as a nugget of, of power um, and sustenance is to continuously work on their own spirituality. And spirituality is not religion. Spirituality is understanding your connectedness or interconnectedness to your whole entire environment around you, to your world, to the universe in and of itself, to continuously ensure that you remind the self of how important you are as a piece of this universe and that you are connected to the power that is out there. If you want to go and sit by a water source, be it a reservoir, a dam, the ocean, go and sit there and take time to just feel connected to what I call Mother Nature itself, because Mother Nature loves everything that is natural to Mother Nature, which is us as human beings, which are the plants that grow on this earth, which is the very air we breathe, which is the waters that we live with on, on, on earth. It's important that we continuously find those things that enrich our our humanity, our our love for the self in connection to the love for the nature that we exist within. And then I think lastly, it's important that we continuously find ways of enriching our, our mind because I, I resonate with the fact that many can be able to do a lot to harm our bodies, but the mind is that very powerful tool that we need to safeguard, we need to protect, we need to enrich and we need to empower so that then we can be able to push back. They can throw us with sticks and stones, but if your mind remains a very resilient, a very strong um, tool that you have, that you enrich, that you sustain and strengthen, it definitely will be your resilience against a lot of the backlash that we, we experience and we encounter. And lastly, in closing, I think it's important, and this is something I've said to a lot of us as LGBTI, particularly in an activist space of the human rights sector that we are in, that we need to also move away or at least diversify our tools of seeking social justice for our communities. The NGO models, yes, model, yes, works. 
um, but it needs to be complemented by other models. Social enterprising is something that I feel is very important. Many of our communities right now have been hard hit by COVID-19, for instance, where we are not able to work. We don't have, we are not earning an, a living. Um, our organizations that often provide interventions and um, resources to us, some of them have been hard hit and are not able to do that. And where governments are now providing economical stimulus and um, relief programs, many of us are not benefiting from those because we have not been counted as a part of the formal economy, for instance. And I feel that social enterprising is an avenue that we all need to seek. Instead of lamenting that we are underemployed and unemployed as LGBTI persons, let us employ ourselves. Let us establish certain particular businesses or economical entities that we can also then hire ourselves, hire our own siblings, be able to also partake in the economy in a very deliberate manner where we are able to also build wealth, where we are also be able to build legacies and be able to provide for livelihoods of our own siblings, thereby ensuring that in future when we are hit by these kind of pandemics, we also can be able to also go and legitimately claim for these economical stimulus and relief programs that our governments are providing for. Thank you so much for that. That that that's that's pretty pretty diverse, pretty big, pretty good advice. And uh, and I like the fact that we, we're talking about religion, which for most people has been that wall that people are yep. unable to go through. It has mm -hmm. been the one, you know, the one hammer that's been telling people that, especially our, our siblings, our LGBTI siblings, that we do not exist, that we do not matter, that we are abominations. So I like the fact that you've spoken exhaustively about this, and I'm sure there's there's a lot more that we can talk about. And I would love to have you on again to just have have an even broader conversation around this. Absolutely. I think we definitely need to have to create platform for conversation on on religion itself, unpacking what is contained within our, our various religious um, scriptures and perhaps even bringing somebody who's also um, Muslim I, and in terms of their affiliation to also speak a little bit to, to their own book and to also bring somebody who is Jewish who can speak to the Torah, for instance, in that way that we can be able to have a very diverse and rich conversation about how do we see um, the pro-diversity liturgy that is contained within our religious scriptures. And that's the way in which we empower ourselves to be able to push back at the religious bigots. Absolutely. Embracing queer theology. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ricky. And I will definitely reach out to you again. It has been a pleasure having a chat with you. And uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Padded Cell Podcast. If you liked it, please leave a review, comment to start a conversation, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast app. Next week, I shall be chatting with Victor Madrigal Borlos, a Costa Rican jurist and the United Nations independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. We shall talk about his work, his life, and he will give us some advice on mental health.